The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Tonight we find ourselves in chapter 9, and we're just kind of systematically making our way through this gospel, one chapter and one verse at a time. And the title of my message for you tonight is The Miracle in the Mud. What's that all about? Well, start like this. There are plenty of questions out there that have yet to be answered. Big questions, important questions. I've compiled a list of a few of them for you. Questions like, why are pizzas round and then they're put in square boxes? This is an important question. Here's another one. Why is the word abbreviated such a long word? Another important question. Why is the person who invests money for you called a broker? Like, scratch your head a little bit. That doesn't make sense. How about this one? Why doesn't glue stick to the inside of the bottle? And why is the time with the slowest traffic called rush hour? And then this important question that I know has been burning in all of our hearts and minds for some time, why didn't Noah swat those two mosquitoes when they climbed onto the ark? Somebody say amen. Amen. God has his reasons. But on a more serious note, one question that I know a lot of people struggle with is this. If God is good, then why is there so much pain and suffering in our world? You see, the world we live in, it's filled with pain and brokenness. It's an unavoidable reality of living in this fallen, broken world. And sometimes, even for us as Christians, it can be hard to reconcile the idea of a good, loving God with a bad and broken world where there's all kinds of pain. And so as we come to John 9, we see Jesus tackling this sticky topic head on in his remarks and in the way he deals with this particular situation. So let's go ahead and read our story beginning in John 9, verse 1. It says, as he went along, he saw a man who is blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this, that this man was born blind, him or his parents? Verse 3, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Now, night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Now, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and he put it in the man's eyes. Then he said, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went, and he washed, and he came home seeing. A short but power-packed story here. And the whole thing centers around the, the healing of this blind man that Jesus just so happened to come across as he was walking down the street. And you know how it is. You can read the Bible a hundred times, and it feels like every time you read it, God highlights a new part of the story for you. At least that happens for me. It never gets old. It never grows tired. And so this time, as I was reading through John 9, the phrase that struck me was the very first phrase there in verse 1, where it says, as he went along. This is how that miracle unfolds. 
It happened just as Jesus was walking down the street and he sees this guy and his eyes land on him and it leads to this wonderful miracle. And, and I was reminded in this moment as I was studying, as the Lord highlighted that scripture off the page, that this is the way that most of Jesus' miracles happened. They occurred as he was making his way from one place to another, as he was en route to somewhere else. And the Lord said this to my heart, and I believe it's something he wants to say to all of us. Ministry doesn't always happen where you think it's supposed to happen, and it doesn't always look like what you expect it to look like. Certainly, this wasn't an event that was on the disciples' radar. They were probably on their way to the temple or some other important engagement, and so they weren't even seeing this man as a ministry opportunity, which is exactly what he was. And so let me just speak to you, because I think that there are a lot of us who have kind of this broken or truncated understanding of what ministry is. And so we think that ministry is what happens in this place. So ministry is the songs that we sing, as beautiful as they are, or ministry is the sermons that I preach. And it's not that this isn't ministry, but ministry isn't limited to what happens here. In fact, I would suggest to you that the vast majority of ministry happens on the outside of these four walls. 99.9% of your ministry opportunities are gonna come to you out there in the real world. It happens as you're kind of getting a coffee at your local Starbucks or as you're interacting with a coworker or as as you run into somebody at the supermarket and you find yourself engaged in just a normal conversation. It's like God infuses those ordinary moments with supernatural meaning so that they become divinely inspired opportunities for him to minister through you where you become a conduit of his grace and mercy, which is a cool thought. You see, my job and what we do here, this is all about equipping. And we huddle together like this. And according to Ephesians chapter 4, it says that God gives pastors and teachers the gift of teaching so that we can bring light and an illumination to the word of God so that then the, the people of God get equipped with the tools they need in their toolbox to go out and do the work of the ministry. So the real work of the ministry is happening all around you, all the time. And so our prayer needs to become, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, would you open my eyes so I begin to see things as you see them. I see people as you see them. I see the ministry opportunities that you're dropping in my lap each and every day because we don't want to pass them up. And so that's what this was. It was just something that happened as he was walking along. And it says he saw a man who was blind from birth. So let's talk about the blind man. Blindness was a prevalent condition in the ancient world. And blind people in Jesus' day had it particularly hard. Why? Because, well, there were no government services or assistance programs to help them out. They had no prospects or hopes of bettering their condition or improving their situation. They had no means of making a living, living aside from begging. And and so that's what we find this man doing every day of his life. 
He would be led or he would make his way to the very same spot. And there he would beg for the mercy of passersby and of strangers. But on this particular day, of all the people who could have found themselves walking past him, he had the luck of having Jesus walk right up to him. And it caused everything to change for him. Why? Because Jesus, he was always looking for opportunities to alleviate human suffering. Wherever and whenever he encountered people in, in need, he was moved with compassion for them. It's really one of the hallmarks of Jesus' whole ministry. In fact, of all of the internal emotions that are associated with Jesus, the one that we most typically find is this compassion. It is to be moved in your spirit in such a way that it prompts action manifested in loving acts in your life. And so Jesus is moved to compassion for him, and that is denoted in the word saw. It doesn't just mean that he saw him physically, but he, he saw his needs, and, and he cherished him in his heart, and he was moved to compassion for him. And that's why he does the miracle. Now, the other reason that Jesus does this miracle is to establish his identity as the Messiah for the crowds and the religious leaders. You see, there were certain miracles that were reserved for the Messiah that, that Jesus performed that clearly connected the dots between Old Testament prophecies and his claim to be God come in the flesh. And this particular miracle, it's one of those. Let me read the prophecy uh, of, out of Isaiah chapter 35 to you that speaks of this miracle. And let's go ahead and read this together out loud. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. This is a prophetic passage in the Old Testament written by Isaiah about these are the things you need to be looking for, Israel, because when you see these things happen and begin to take place, you'll know that the Messiah is standing in your midst. In particular, this miracle of giving sight to a blind man. You know, this is the only, there are no accounts of healing of blindness anywhere to be found in the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? The prophets performed all kinds of incredible miracles. I mean, Moses parted the Red Sea. They healed leprosy and all kinds of other sicknesses. And even they raised people from the dead. But no prophet ever healed a man of blindness. Thus, the religious leaders of the day began to teach that when someone came along who could open the eyes of the blind, it would signal to the world that the Messiah had arrived. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. And he sees the man, and he moves towards him. And his heart is moved with compassion for him. But the disciples aren't looking at the guy as an object deserving of mercy, but rather as a subject for theological debate. And so in verse 2, they see Jesus staring at the guy, and they say, hey, who sinned that this guy was born blind? Was it, is it his fault, or is it his parents' fault? Those were the, the two, uh, you know, um, different ideas in their mind. Either it's his fault or it's his parents' fault. So let's talk about this. Why is there suffering? And the disciples' question reflected the prevailing view of the religious leaders of the day that saw a direct link between all suffering and some immediate sin that was present 
in the person's life. But this particular situation, it, it caused a conundrum to form in the minds of the disciples because they're like, well, if suffering comes because of some sin in your life, and this guy was born blind, then logic would dictate that it must be his parents' fault. So either he somehow managed to like sin in the womb. Is that even possible? I mean, how much trouble can you get in when you're in the womb? I don't know. So either he sinned in the womb or it was his parents. And so they asked this question. And undergirding their question is an even deeper one about the cause of human suffering, right? This is something we wrestle with. Why is there pain? For many people, even in the church, the concept of a loving God in a world full of pain, like I said, they seem incompatible. And, and the thinking kind of runs along these lines. Either God is all good, and he wants to alleviate pain and suffering, but he's not all powerful, and so he's impotent. He's incapable of doing things to help us. Or he's all powerful. He could do something to alleviate our pain and suffering, but he chooses not to, in which case he can't be all good. Maybe you found yourself struggling with this same thing. Bad things happen, and when they do, they can leave us reeling. Even Asaph in Psalm 73, if you're familiar with that psalm, he was a godly man, but he looked around and he saw the wicked prospering. He said he saw good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people. And he, he said, my feet almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And who hasn't been there? And that's why I'm so thankful that the disciples asked this question. Now let's consider Jesus' answer. He says in verse 3, no, your, your reasoning is, is, is wrong. It wasn't his fault or his parents' fault. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed within him. This man wasn't suffering because of something he had done directly or because of his parents. Now, I want to just address something. Some preachers teach this very thing, that every time you get sick, because you have some sin in your life. And that's not what we find in God's word. And Jesus refutes that teaching right here in plain speech. Other preachers would lead you to believe that if you aren't healed of such and such sickness, that it's all your fault. And it's because you don't have enough faith. And again, this isn't something that we find in scripture. The truth of the matter is, we live in a fallen, broken world. And because of that, good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people. Now, if you step back on the broadest level, you could argue that all sickness, disability, suffering, and all of these things can be traced back to sin, the sin of Adam and Eve in the fall there in the garden. But it wasn't God's original intent or design. God didn't design us to get sick. He didn't design our bodies to break down and wear out or even die. We were made to live forever. But when we partook of the fruit through Adam and Eve, our great, 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 great grandparents, and because we were all in them, we suffer the consequences of that choice. And it has sent humanity into this tailspin. And that's why there is suffering. But that doesn't mean you can always make it into direct link or connection between suffering and sin. As an example of that, you remember the story of Job. And Job suffered horrifically. And all of his buddies came around. And they tried to say, well, you probably have some secret sin in your life. And just fess up and get it out into the open. And let's get this thing done with. 
And God rebuked them, and he said, Job is the most righteous guy around, more righteous than all of you, and he rebuked those poor friends that Job had. Now, on the flip side, there are certain behaviors that you can partake of that will result in your own suffering, that can lead to sickness and even death, and we're well acquainted with these. I mean, if you choose a life of alcoholism, your liver very likely will give up. If you choose a lifestyle of smoking, your lungs are going to pay a price. If you choose a lifestyle of drug addiction, that's going to take a toll on your body. And, and if you choose a life of sexual promiscuity, then that can lead to sexually transmitted diseases. And, and, and so there are those times when there's a direct link. However, in the life of a Christian, wherever you see suffering, God will redeem it, and he'll use it, and he'll be glorified through it, which is what Jesus lands on. He says, this happened so that God can be glorified. Now, when you hear him say that, don't hear him saying that God inflicted the man with blindness so that he could come along later on and heal him. God doesn't go around cursing people just so that he can come later and show mercy. Uh-uh. Rather, what Jesus does here is he takes some broken parts of remnant that is left over because of the fall of humanity, and he reverses it to show his original intent and design. He takes what is evil, and he redeems it to bring good out of it. Yeah, somebody say amen. amen. And Jesus went on to say this, and I'm the light of the world. And remember, he's saying this within earshot of the man. And so I believe he made this claim about himself, a claim that he has previously made, but he makes it again here because he wants the blind guy to hear him. Why? Well, this guy had spent his entire life trapped in darkness, and Jesus wanted him to know that he was getting ready to usher him into the light of day. Now, we know in our modern era that the relationship that exists between light and sight you can't have one without the other. If there were no light, you wouldn't be able to see a thing. And we're only able to see because light from an object reflects off of an image and it reaches our eyes. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, he's giving the blind man a clue about what he's about to do. And this is where the story gets really interesting there in verse 6. It says, after saying this, he spits on the ground and makes mud and rubs it in the man's eyes. So let's kind of put ourselves in the sandals of this blind man. He's listening. He's eavesdropping on this conversation between Jesus and his disciples about the source and cause of human suffering. And he hears Jesus say, no, 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 this man, it's not suffering because of some sin in his life, but God wants to do a mighty work today. And I'm the light of the world. And, and while it's day, I've got to do the works of him who sent me. And so he's, he's taking all of this in and he's just like what is happening and then the next thing he hears is <laughs> he's like what in the world was that and then in the very next moment he feels the hands of Jesus taking mud that he has just made using his own saliva and he's rubbing it in the man's eyes what do you think was going through this guy's mind he must have thought what in the world now, we have to talk about, you know, Jesus here. Why did he heal the man in this particular way? And we see Jesus healing in all kinds of different ways and manners throughout the Gospels, right? I mean, sometimes he would just speak a word, 
and the person would be healed that way. Oftentimes he would touch a person and, and they would be healed through his touch. Sometimes he would do his healing in close proximity, but then there were those other instances where he would heal someone who might be in the next town over. And then remember there was that story of the woman who was healed just by reaching out and touching the hem of Jesus' garment. And there are three instances in scripture where Jesus heals someone using his spit. But this is the only instance that I know of in the Bible where Jesus makes mud and heals with mud that he's made with his own spit. And I don't know about you, but I think Jesus varied the methods that he used to heal people because he knows how, how easily we become fixated on the method and we miss out on the message. We're so prone to focusing and fixating on the wrong things, and Jesus knew that, which is why he would always switch things up so we wouldn't start a ministry based on the spitting ministry. You know, He's like, no, I'm going to do it differently this time. You know, and, and by the way, as it come, pertains to this idea of using spit, it, it could have had something to do with the beliefs of, of contemporary culture at that time. You can go back and find several Roman writers as well as Jewish rabbis who, who believed that spit had, uh, it was a valid treatment and it had medicinal properties that could heal sickness and, and even as a salve for eyes. And you can read about that in ancient manuscripts. And, and by the way, I just wanted to make a quick note about the power of a mom's spit. You know, I was reading about moms and how, and, and at least when I was growing up, your mom's spit was used as like a hair gel. It, it was a detergent. It could get any stain off of any clothing item. It, it could clean any surface. I mean, the power, I, I digress, but Jesus uses his spit here to heal. And it could have been, hey, I want to communicate to this blind man. He can't see, so I'm going to make a little noise, you know, and he's going to know, oh, this is medicine that's being put on my eyes. And he would have naturally interpreted Jesus' actions as a signal that he was about to be healed. But, 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 the spit is one thing. <laughs> but what about the mud? Let's talk about the miracle in the mud. And I was thinking about it because the Bible records one other instance where God uses mud to create. Does anyone know where it is? Genesis. I heard somebody say it. Praise the Lord. You Bible students are so scholarly. You go all the way back to the beginning. And what do you find there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7? It says this, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth. We are formed from the dust of the earth. And then he breathed into him, and the spark of life was brought into our lifeless bodies. And, and you think about what we are. It's amazing that we're basically a bunch of dirt clods walking around that are filled with water and have the breath of life that's been breathed into us. Isn't that funny? I mean, you can go up and, and, and pick up a, a handful of dirt as you leave this evening and the same elements of carbon and hydrogen and calcium and nitrogen, the 11 elements that you find in the earth, those are the same elements that make up every person. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So the next time you're tempted to think, hey, I'm, 
something special here. I'm pretty cool. Be reminded, you're a walking dirt clod. You're a clay pot. But you hold something of tremendous worth and tremendous value inside of you because you are a carrier of the divine essence. God has chosen to dwell within your heart. And so it's not you that's special, but it is what you house in your clay jar. That's where the real treasure lies. And so in in using mud... In my mind, I'm going back to Genesis, and I have to believe that's what was happening in the mind of this blind man as well. Jesus wanted to remind everyone there of the creation story. And just as God used dust to form man, Jesus takes the same dust, and he uses it with his spit, his his human juices, and he makes an eye for a blind man. And in doing so, he communicates that he has the same creative power as God Almighty. I just want to trip out on this. I like to get sciencey and nerdy with you guys here for just a moment. As we think about what it takes to create an eye, we're all, you know, if you, unless you're blind, you're, you're here and you're enjoying sight. Well, listen to what Charles Darwin had to say about the human eye. He saw it as one of the greatest challenges to his theory of evolution. How could he explain it? I mean, it's, it's incompatible with evolution. Here's what Charles Darwin said in his own words. He said, and I quote, to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. So there even Charles Darwin had to confess that it's just ludicrous to think that an eye could form spontaneously through the processes of natural selection. Vision truly is a miracle. In fact, of all the parts of the human body, none is more intricate or awesome than the eye. I had a friend in Colorado. He was a heart doctor. He, he was a doctor that he, he specialized in, in mechanical hearts and, and putting those in people. But he got saved in medical school as he was studying the intricacies of the human body and things like the eye that speak of God's design and his beauty and his grandeur. Listen to this. I'm just going to read some facts to you here. Although it only measures about an inch in diameter, it can do, this is your eye, can do things science and even the most advanced cameras have never been able to duplicate or even mimic. Your eye possesses 130 million light-sensitive rods and cones that convert light into chemical impulses. These signals travel at a rate of a billion per second to the brain. And this is happening continuously all the time. Your iris controls the amount of light that enters your eye, and it fluctuates and contracts and expands depending on the light in the room. Your lens helps focus the light. The retina, which sits at the back of your eye, is a light-sensitive surface, and it captures the image of what you're looking at. Then the retina sends impulses to your brain along the optic nerve. Finally, at the end of this long journey, your brain interprets what you are seeing. Now consider that Jesus created all of that in a moment with a little bit of spit and some mud that he mixed together with his hands and rubbed in this man's eyes. And then he says to him, now go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And John gives us this interpretive clue in verse 6 when he says, Siloam, the pool that Jesus sent him to, it means sent. 
What did Jesus say earlier? I believe it's in verse four. He said, while it's day, I must do the works of him who sent me. Jesus says, I've been sent from God to do the work of God, and you're about to be the recipient of this work. Now I've put healing balm in your eyes. Now go to the pool that preaches the same message, and as you take these steps of faith, God will bring sight to your eyes. It was a test, and God will test you. Why? Because it's all about building faith. In our world, seeing is believing. But in the kingdom of God, that's reversed. And God says, you got to believe it, and then you'll see it. And so making his way there, although it would have been difficult, it was a test of his faith. It would have been far easier for him to sit and grab a towel and be insulted by <laughs> this guy who had just rubbed spit in his eye. And he could have done a number of things. But instead, he obeys. He puts feet to his faith, and he walks from where he is all the way down, and it was a far walk, and he gets all the way to the pool of Siloam, and then he comes back seeing. And I want to close with this thought. There are two kinds of seeing. You see, Jesus heals the man's eyes physically, and we don't have time to, tonight to look at the whole story. But, and I'm getting ahead of us, but next week when we gather, we're going to talk about how the, the physical miracle of healing his blindness leads to the, the eyes of his heart being open so that he sees who Jesus really is and he becomes a Christ follower. And that's the greatest miracle in this story. The greatest miracle is not that someone might receive a temporary healing. No, the greatest miracle that could ever happen in a person's life is that their dead, blind heart begins to beat and they see Jesus for who he is. And as we look at the man's story, and again, we're going to look at this in greater detail next week, but he sums up his entire testimony for us in verse 25 when they're pressing him on who healed you? And, and tell us how it went down. And, and, and the guy that you're saying healed you, this guy, Jesus, we know that he's not from God. And the guy says, hey, look, that's what you're saying. All I can tell you is I was blind, but now I see. And I want to leave you tonight by suggesting that that is the essence of the testimony of every follower of Jesus. Just like the blind man in our story, every one of us in here was born spiritually blind. That is, we were blinded by sin, blinded to what really matters in life, blinded to the reality of Christ, blinded to what our meaning and our purpose and our existence is all about. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Let's read this verse together out loud. It's in your notes. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. If you're not a believer in here tonight, it's because Satan has blinded the eyes of your heart. But Jesus is the light of the world. And he left heaven and he came to this earth to do the works of God. And the greatest work he did was going to the cross in your place so that just like the blind beggar in our story, you could have your spiritual eyes open. You could receive the healing of your heart, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of heaven, the promise of eternal life, and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. God wants you to walk in those things. He wants you to see him. And if you don't see him as the most precious 
the most beautiful, the most glorious being in all of the universe, if there's something that you desire more, then you need to put on corrective lenses. You need to get your vision checked because God is the greatest. He is so good. He is love. He is mercy. He is everything that your heart was designed to seek and want and desire. You'll never be satisfied in this life until you turn to him. So we turn our eyes upon Jesus. We look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth grow strangely dim in light of his glory and his grace. Thank you, Lord, for this word and this time and this story and the power of your redemptive work in our lives, Lord. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would open blind eyes, whether physically or spiritually or both, Lord. You can do it. You're still doing it. And we believe you for it. And in this moment, I believe that God is here by his Holy Spirit, and he's moving in your heart, and he's bringing conviction of sin, and he's calling you to himself, not that he might condemn you, but in order that he might welcome you. You may have come in here like a blind beggar, but you can leave here as a son or a daughter who is a promised heir of the things of heaven. Jesus loves you with an unquenchable, unconquerable, unearthly love. His love can't be measured. His love can't be quantified. His love can't be exhausted. There is no sin that you've committed that puts you outside the realm or bounds of where his love can go. I love the way Corrington Boom put it when she wrote, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. And so whoever you are and wherever you find yourself tonight, it is not by coincidence or accident that you find yourself in the house of the Lord and God is speaking to you by his Holy Spirit. He is drawing you with cords of love to himself that you might turn your eyes upon him and have the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you might know with all saints what is the depth and the breadth and the width and the height and the love of God which it surpasses knowledge. And this is God's heart for you. He wants you to receive it. And you say, how do I receive it? You just invite him in. You just invite him in. And he'll come. If that's the desire of your heart, I want to lead you in a prayer right now. And if you'll just pray this prayer out loud from the bottom of your heart, you will be welcome into God's family. He will forgive your past. He will wash you and create in you a clean heart and make you a new person. Remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. And I'll just invite those of us who know and love the Lord to pray this prayer together out loud as a means of affirming or reestablishing or reconnecting our hearts with Jesus. Just say, dear Jesus, I love you. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Thank you for loving me and taking my place and bearing my cross and paying for my sin. 
I receive the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Now write my name in the Lamb's book of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.